Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, editor of GP Online, and I'm joined by our news editor, Nick Bostock. On this episode, we'll be talking about the government's so-called support package for general practice, the reaction from GPs, and what happens next. We'll also be discussing England's Chief Medical Officer, Professor Chris Whitty's appearance at the RCGP annual conference last week, and what he had to say about general practice in the difficult winter to come. Later in the podcast, I'll be speaking to Dr Richard Main, a GP in Belfast, about sedentary behaviour in general practice and also the importance of promoting physical activity. And finally, we've got a bit of good news about research in general practice. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. First up, last week the government announced details of how it intends to support general practice this winter. But it's fair to say that GPs and representative groups, including the BMA and RCGP, found the plans anything but supportive. And both NHS England and Health Secretary Sajid Javid faced a huge backlash from the profession. The plans do promise some additional funding, but it comes with a string of additional demands. So it's hard to imagine that it will be useful. Meanwhile, it also continues the government's obsession with face-to-face appointments and could see those practices with the lowest rates of in-person appointments named and shamed and possible sanctions applied. So, Nick, what exactly is the plan? This was originally billed as a support package for general practice. But what the government in NHS England actually announced was called a plan for improving access for patients and supporting general practice. And I think it's fair to say that overall this document feels a lot more focused on the access part rather than the supporting GPs part. The plan orders GP practices to complete reviews by the end of October, looking at whether they've got the balance for patients right between remote and face-to-face consultations. Alongside this, England's 44 integrated care systems have been told to draw up immediately a list of up to 20% of their practices where they will intervene directly to support improved access. Practices could be in line for this treatment if they're in the bottom 20% for the proportion of appointments delivered face-to-face or if A&E usage is high among their patient list, if they aren't delivering more appointments than before the pandemic and if calls to 111 from their patients are high in core hours. And the plans will also bring new quaff targets on access for GP practices, as well as, from April 2022, a new patient satisfaction system that will invite patients to rate their practice by text after an appointment. And satisfaction scores from this new system will be published at an individual practice level alongside practice-level data on activity and waiting times, something the BMA has said amounts to a name-and-shame approach. And money from the Investment and Impact Fund will increasingly be linked to access as well. So there is a lot there on access uh, and a lot of additional burden on practices uh, that comes with that. And meanwhile, in terms of support, there's £250 million in funding, which we'll come on to in a bit more detail later. There are some measures aimed at reducing bureaucracy, such as making it easier for staff other than GPs to do fit notes and DVLA checks, as well as a restatement of some policies already in place, such as paired back appraisals and requirements uh, in hospital contracts to avoid dumping work on GPs. But some of the measures we know GPs want, like another freeze on quaff or a scaling back of the targets in quaff, and things like reducing CQC pressure are not in there. And the response from the BMA to all of this support element has been that much of it restates existing policy, that it doesn't offer anything much to ease pressure uh, right now. And ultimately, that the the money there is comes with lots of strings attached. Yeah, so how is that funding going to work? The main block of cash is a 
£250 million winter access fund. That might sound like a fair bit of money, but to put it in perspective, it's roughly £35,000 per GP practice in England, or £4 per patient. But, and there is always a but, once you read the detail, it actually becomes clear that much of it may not go to frontline general practice at all. Anything that has said that the money can be used to pay existing staff to work more hours. So if anyone can find existing staff in primary care who aren't already at their limit, that's an option. And it can also be used to bring in additional locum support. It could also be used to pay for admin staff at PCN federation or practice level. And it could also be spent on boosting urgent care capacity or 111 support, so not supporting general practice directly at all. And the plans also suggest that some of the money could be used to bring in doctors who are not GPs, such as geriatricians, to support primary care, which the BMA has raised some concerns about. There's also another reason why the money might not get through to frontline GPs, and arguably to some of the practices that need it most, which is that this fund will only support practices that are signed up to other measures around access. Areas pitching for a share of the cash will have to show that practices are delivering more appointments than before the pandemic, and that they're increasing face-to-face access, and are expected to intervene directly to challenge practices that are struggling to deliver this. So overall, particularly for practices that are feeling the pressure most already, it's really not clear that much of this money will come their way. Yeah, I mean, we spoke a couple of weeks ago on the podcast about the fact that practices are already providing significantly more appointments each month than they were before the pandemic. So this plan sort of implying that they aren't doing this already is really not helpful, It also just plays into that narrative that GPs aren't seeing patients face to face when they are. And that seems really destructive at what's already a very difficult time with rising levels of abuse that we're seeing on the ground in practices. I mean, looking at the small print as well, there's a mention of the CQC and they're going to have a role in all of this. The regulator has been asked to develop a new inspection methodology with a focus on access and practices deemed to have problems around that could be subject to unannounced inspections. There's also obviously new infection control guidance that suggests practices can cut social distancing from two metres to one metres, presumably to enable them to pack out waiting rooms so more patients can be seen face to face just in time for winter. A BMA analysis of the plans found that of the 29 initiatives mentioned, 10 are not new. Nine will provide no additional support for general practice. Three could provide some support, but probably only in the longer term. And just seven may, I say may, provide some support. Anyone who listened to our interview on the podcast last week with RCGP Chair Professor Martin Marshall will know that he seemed quite hopeful of some significant movement from the government to support GPs. And I think the RCGP and the BMA were clearly expecting a lot more than what they've been given. Um, I mentioned at the start that GPs have reacted really angrily to the plan. I mean, it's definitely soured relationships, hasn't it, Nick? I mean, the BMA in particular is taking a pretty hard line on this. Yeah. By the time this podcast airs, the BMA GP committee will have met to discuss how the profession should respond to the support package. And we know that half of GPs responding to a recent poll by the association have said they'd consider quitting the NHS if the government doesn't improve support. So the relationship between the profession on the one hand and the government and NHS England on the other is absolutely at rock bottom again, despite the bit of optimism that you mentioned in the run-up to the publication of this package. The BMA has said practices should not focus on the plans in any meaningful way, which sounds pretty much like advising them to ignore the support package and the access requirements wrapped up in it. The plan itself suggests practices could face contractual action if they don't engage, but the BMA has said that threat is completely unacceptable, and I think there are question marks over whether it's enforceable. 
as you mentioned, the CQC could also get involved. It's apparently drawing up a new inspection methodology with a focus on access and could carry out unannounced visits as part of this. And overall, I think the theme picked up in the conclusion to the BMA analysis you mentioned earlier sums up the problem. This was meant to be a support package for general practice, but it does very little to support the profession and does a lot to add extra pressure at a time when workload is already at an unprecedented level. And as a result, general practice is at a real risk of falling over this winter. Well, this is obviously an issue where we can expect a lot more developments in the coming days. So do keep an eye on GP online for the latest news. Last week was the RCGP annual conference in Liverpool. One of the most popular people to take to the stage was England's chief medical officer, Professor Chris Whitty. He came on stage to cheers from GPs in the audience and left to a standing ovation. During his appearance, he said one of his main reasons for attending the conference was to thank GPs. And we've got a little clip of that bit to listen to here. Because I I did want to, uh, before I did that, really, I mean, there's a reason I came here. And that was because I'm, I'm massively admiring of what all of you have done and continue to do in the biggest public health challenge in our professional careers. It really has been very difficult. It's going to continue to be difficult. I don't think we should sugarcoat that at all. But the way in which general practice has risen to the challenge uh, of providing not only COVID care, of getting us out of the problem with the uh, vaccination, but at the same time, keeping everything else going, has been absolutely outstanding. And I just wanted to say an enormous thank you. So in a sense, me coming here, that's my principal message, is an enormous thank you to all of you for what you've done. Those comments were really appreciated by GPs in the room, I think. But perhaps the other big takeaway from that appearance was Professor Whitty's comments on how hard he thought this winter would be, although he did say we would be in a catastrophically worse place without the efforts of general practice on the vaccination programme. But he did say there was a real risk of the NHS facing more severe pressure as a result of COVID, something which is probably even more of a concern given the recent surge in cases this week. Obviously, there's also the worry of a resurgence of flu and whether or not the vaccine for flu is actually going to match the strain in circulation this year. Serious respiratory viruses doing the rounds at the minute, as well as all of the other winter pressures of cardiovascular disease and trips and falls. Then there's also the backlog of care and people who've delayed seeing their doctor and are coming forward later in their illnesses. So basically what he said, all of these things together would make winter extremely difficult. And obviously, on top of that, there's really a real push to keep momentum up with the vaccination programme and the booster jabs. And that's going to be a big, um, big piece of work as well. So he said winter's going to be really difficult and general practice is really going to be on the front line of all of this. Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, Professor Whitty spoke about the fact that the winter ahead is going to be extraordinarily difficult for the NHS. And this is something people have been predicting for a long time because of the rise in seasonal illness that happens through winter, adding to both short and long term COVID pressures. And obviously, as as we've seen this week, we're now seeing 45 to 50,000 cases of COVID a day. Numbers are being admitted to hospitals are going up and some NHS leaders are warning it's already time for a plan B in the UK to try and slow this down. But coming back to what we've discussed already about the so-called support package, The clear messages and evidence about what's coming this winter makes it even harder to believe that the package put forward does so little to support or ease pressure on general practice. And obviously, we're now waiting to see what the PMA response will be. But clearly, it's going to need to be a powerful message to get through in the current climate. And if it does get through and the government and NHS England can be persuaded to rethink the support package, the likely response from parts of the media is unfortunately all too predictable. (laughs) 
I'm delighted to be joined now by Dr. Richard Main, who is a general practice academic clinical fellow at Queen's University Belfast in Northern Ireland. Richard's research interests are around sedentary behaviour and physical activity, which is what we're going to talk about today. One of Richard's aims is to help people to sit less and move more to live longer, happier and healthier lives. And so he's really active on Twitter and Instagram, where he's known as the Moving Medic. And he also has his own blog under that name. Thanks so much for joining us, Richard. Yeah, great to be here. Great to be talking with you, Emma. You're an academic GP. Can you just explain a bit more about what that involves? And do you split your time between research and clinical practice and how that works? Yeah, so I did academic research as part of the general practice academic research training scheme in Northern Ireland. So it's similar to the rest of the UK, where if you're doing research as a trainee, you do an extra year in the training program uh, to allow you to undertake research during that time and combining that with working in general practice. Um, so I've actually just finished that position uh, where um, now um, I'm just finished GP training. Um, so now I've moved into a, a, a position as a general practice uh, federation fellow um, in which I'll be developing more uh, skills in musculoskeletal medicine um, and hopefully some skills in primary care leadership, as well as continuing to work in general practice. But the research that I was doing was done alongside my clinical work in general practice, where I was doing uh, several days a week in, in general practice and then a couple of days a week uh, doing research through Queen's University Belfast. And I really liked that, uh, that mix of the day-to-day -day clinical work at the cool face of general practice with then the more academic view of things, uh, looking at things from a research perspective. I mentioned at the start, some of your main areas of interest of research, which you've been looking at, is physical activity and how this impacts on overall health. How did you become interested in that particular area of research? Well, yeah, I've always been interested in sport and physical activity in my own personal life. Uh, so I've always been a sporty person and someone who's enjoyed getting outdoors and exercising. Um, and actually during my first two years of GP training, I undertook a master's in sport and exercise medicine. And within that, I was learning more about the benefits of physical activity and the harms of, of sedentary behavior, which is basically when you're sitting or lying down um, and the negative effects that has on health. Um, so, yeah, then whenever I was working in general practice, I'm spending a lot of time sitting down and potentially this maybe isn't very good for my health and my ability to consult patients about their lifestyles, um, particularly physical activity and things. So potentially this is something that really would be worth looking into a little bit more. I looked to see there hadn't really been much research in that area before. So I thought that's something I would love to explore in more detail. And, and so I applied to a, a research post that allowed me to do that. So this is research looking at sedentary behaviour and general practice. Can you just explain a bit of what you looked at and what you found out? Yeah, so sedentary behaviour research really stems from the 1950s uh, when there was a, an epidemiologist who worked in London uh, called Professor Jeremy Morris, and he looked at uh, health outcomes and cardiovascular disease among bus conductors and bus drivers in London after the Second World War. And what he found was that bus conductors lived longer and the bus drivers unfortunately died younger from cardiovascular disease than their bus conductor colleagues. And the main difference between the two jobs was the amount of time they were spending sitting down at work. Um, so bus drivers obviously spend a lot more time sitting than the, the bus conductors would have, been, would have done. And so I kind of was thinking, well, our GPs, are we potentially the bus drivers of the medical world uh, sitting at our desk all day with uh, patients coming in and out and us just sitting down the whole time? 
Um, and you know, are we uh, should we be thinking about the effect that this is having on our health? Um, and certainly, in my experience, that was the case. Having worked in hospital as a junior doctor and in emergency medicine, general medicine on the wards, you're on your feet and moving around pretty much constantly. And then I moved to working in general practice, and I was sitting down almost all the time. And I just kind of thought this isn't good for my health and it's not setting a good example to patients. So we need to find out more about uh, what all this involves. So um, yeah, with the research that we undertook at Queen's was looking to find out exactly how much time uh, doctors, uh, GPs and GP trainees spend sitting down throughout the course of a working day and then comparing that to a day off work. Uh, so it, it, there were some quite scary findings. Uh, we we conducted a questionnaire survey, and then we also uh, did an accelerometer study, which is a way of wearing a device on your thigh that can detect whether you're sitting or standing or moving. And what we found was that most doctors working in general practice were averaging around 10 and a half hours uh, of sitting or sedentary time over the course of every working day, which is uh, which is very high. Actually, among the, the GP trainees that were working in hospital settings that were in hospital jobs, they were averaging less than eight hours of daily sedentary time. So it was a very significant difference between the two groups. And uh, it does make you wonder whether this is having an effect on the health of, of GPs, given that there is a what's called a dose-response relationship, whereby the more time you spend sitting, the higher your, your uh, mortality risk, unfortunately. I noticed a post on your blog called, um, is sedentary behaviour the new smoking, which kind of suggests the impact's pretty horrendous. So, so what is the impact of sedentary behaviour on health? How does it affect health? Well, the, the main issue is prolonged periods of, of sedentary time, of sitting down or lying down, because basically your body goes into shutdown mode and you burn very little energy and you don't use any of the muscles in your legs, which are the main muscles for burning energy and for uh, improving blood flow throughout the body as well. So um, you end up with uh, your chronically over time, it does lead to adverse cardiovascular outcomes, heart disease, as well as metabolic health problems like diabetes and a range of uh, mental health conditions and things like dementia, all associated with excessive sedentary time. Um, so it's a combination of all of those things that then leads to cumulative uh, dose response relationship with uh, with mortality, unfortunately. If GPs are spending too much time sitting down in their day-to-day working life. What do you think needs to change and how do you think you could reduce sedentary behaviour, maybe increase physical activity in the practice? And why do you think that's important? I think a big problem with general practice is that people associate working behind a computer as being a job that you need to do sitting down. Uh, but that's not necessarily the case. Uh, you can, uh, with with uh, height adjustable sit-stand desks, you can alternate between sitting and standing. And then obviously there's, it's just trying to, I think the main problem is the lack of awareness about the harms of sedentary behavior. I think everybody's aware of the benefits of physical activity, um, but uh, it's, it's probably not always good enough to be, uh, sitting down pretty much all week and then maybe going to the gym for 30 minutes twice a week and thinking that's going to undo all the harms of all of the sitting that you're doing. Actually, you need to think of more of a 24, 24 hour uh, and seven day uh, week in terms of what you're doing uh, cumulatively through all of that time. And within that, it's really trying to minimize the amount of time you're spending sitting down, especially for prolonged periods and alternating between sitting and standing and trying to move more just through the working day um, and 
for your life in general um, and not just thinking that I, you know, by going for a half hour run once or twice a week is going to, to fix everything. Obviously, you've done a lot of research around physical activity. Um, do you think it's important that doctors and clinicians lead by example in terms of physical activity and healthy behaviour? Do you think it makes it easier for them to then offer advice to patients if they live a healthier lifestyle? Well, part of the reason we've been looking at general practice is that uh, general practice is really at the coal face of the NHS with over 300 million consultations every year in the primary care setting. Um, so the bulk of the general public's perspe- perception of healthcare is delivered through general practice. Mm. So it's important to consider people working in general practice uh, and how they they can influence population behaviours. Because uh, in years gone by, in the 1950s and 1960s, it was doctors being used to advertise cigarettes uh, that were used by (laughs) the tobacco industry because they were obviously identified as being key influencers when it came to health choices. Um, And so obviously the advertising industry was well aware of that. Uh, So I think whether you like it or not, if you're working in the healthcare setting, people do look to you for uh, your advice and as a role model about uh, lifestyle choices. Uh, So um, yeah, that's just the way it's perceived by the general public, whether you like it or not. And there is research to back that up. uh, And research does show that doctors who are more physically active are more likely to recommend physical activities to their patients and patients are more likely to believe the advice from their clinician if they believe that their clinician falls it themselves. There was a study done that was very simple, but uh, they had a doctor giving lifestyle advice to a patient um, and either the doctor had a bottle of water and an apple and a cycling helmet on their desk or else they didn't and the patients that came in and saw the doctor with the cycling helmet and the apple were much more likely to believe that their doctor, you know, their doctor's advice than, than in the other group. Also, people with poor underlying health and people who are overweight have obviously been disproportionately affected by more severe outcomes from COVID. Do you think there needs to be greater investment and policy around sort of promoting and encouraging physical activity and healthier lifestyles? And what what would you like to see happen around that? Yeah, I think it's particularly of relevance in areas of deprivation, which have had probably the worst outcomes from COVID-19, that uh, there's a lot of urban areas that have very little green space and very little opportunity for exercise. and, And we know that exercising and physical activity is beneficial for health. So it's really trying to encourage people to do that in whatever way possible. Uh, Personally, I think uh, starting with earlier in life is probably the best solution or the best way of trying to change behavior. Um, And, you know, with with people in primary schools and secondary schools, trying to encourage them to be more physically active and building that into their routine throughout the throughout the school day, which would hopefully lead them on to continuing to to be more physically active throughout the rest of their their lives. Uh, So things like the the daily mile uh, in in primary schools are a really good idea. And just, you know, taking breaks during school classes to stand up and stretch and move uh, to help children then concentrate better uh, is is also very beneficial. Um, So I think that's probably where the best that is moving forward. So in terms of GPs or, or other health professionals that are working in primary care, what does the research sort of tell us about the best ways to promote healthy lifestyles if you've got a patient in front of you and you need to do? Is there, is there any sort of uh, 
pretty concrete evidence about the best way to approach it? Uh, I, I don't think you can just do a one-size-fits-all approach. I think it has to be tailored to the individual who, is, who you're speaking to at the time, because what works for one person may not work for another person. Um, and it's also important not to jump to any conclusions, because um, sometimes you may look at somebody and think, uh, they may be obese, but they may actually be very physically active. So it's good not to jump to conclusions, but best to ask people what they're doing and make a quick assessment uh, based on what they tell you. Um, and then working with people to try and work out uh, if they would rather be doing more physical activity, where is the best way of actually doing that, that they'll be able to sustain in the long run. Um, and actually often the best way of doing it is not people feeling like they're going out on their own to do something as as that's harder to maintain whereas trying to have more of a social connection is really the best bet because then you have other people that are encouraging you and you encouraging other people to get out the door and and do physical activity um so that's where things like park run are absolutely fantastic because that's happening every saturday and it's always at the same place always at the same time and you'll get to know other people that are going through the same journey as you, we'll encourage you through that. Uh, so really it's trying to build that social connection and make people aware of uh, things like that that are going on in their local area that they can kind of join in with that will probably give them the best benefit. So is there anything you're particularly keen to, to sort of research now? Well, something we've been uh, looking at is actually collaborating with a team based in Loughborough University uh, with uh, Professor Amanda Daly and Dr. Uh, Greg Biddle, who have been looking at bringing in standing desks into the general practice setting. We've been trying to collaborate with them on exploring if we can encourage doctors to be less sedentary and more physically active, whether that helps with trying to reduce some of the burnout and fatigue and things associated with working long hours in general practice. Um, So really, we're trying to dig more into the data that's come from that collaboration study and see where that leads to moving forwards. Do people use standing desks much in general practice? Have you come across it a lot? Yeah, so actually in the survey that we did uh, among GPs and GP trainees in North Ireland, we had a response rate of almost 20% of all the GPs and trainees in North Ireland. Uh, and within that, there, we, it, it is important to note that it's more likely that the people that responded to the survey are probably more interested in physical activity and sedentary behaviour and all those sort of things. But uh, among our participants, uh, 6% actually in of those working in general practice did have a, a, an active workstation like a sit-stand desk. So there are a number of early adopters that are out there that are already using them. Uh, and certainly I've benefited from working behind a sit-stand desk and some of my colleagues have found it beneficial, especially with doing more remote consulting uh, as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic uh, with less numbers of face-to-face consultations and more remote consultations, it does mean you can, uh, you know, have a consultation with the patient over the phone while you're standing up or even, you know, moving small amounts around, the, you know, within the consulting room. You've obviously got this social media presence in your your website. What are you hoping to do with that? Is that just more about pushing the message out to the public? It's just trying to inspire people to be more physically active. But I think where there's a lack of awareness is the harms of sedentary behaviour and all the time spent sitting down. And I suppose inherently humans, we are fairly lazy in that we do make a lot of adjustments to make life easier for ourselves. If you look at escalators and lifts and clicking foods on the internet and getting just eat and deliver things brought to you with minimal physical activity. So it's just trying to help people to be aware of the harms of sedentary behaviour 
um, as well as the benefits of physical activity so that hopefully that'll have some sort of a positive influence on on a, a, as many people as possible because um, personally I don't think there's any point in doing research that you're not uh, interested in or passionate about and also there's no point in doing research if you're not going to make any difference as a result of doing the research so it's really just trying to have a wider impact uh, you know, from the research that, that we've been doing. Thanks so much to Richard for talking to me this week. You can find more information about his work and a link to his blog in the description to this episode. So we just have time for our good news piece for this week, and that's down to me. I just want to give a quick mention to the winners of the RCGP Research Papers of the Year. This year, there were two winners, one general winner and one for COVID-19. The COVID-19 Research Paper of the Year went to the work Oxford University did on the QCOVID tool that assesses an individual's risk of serious illness if they contract COVID. The RCGP said the research was an excellent example of the value of routine primary care records. Meanwhile, the general award went to a paper by GP academics in East London on the IRIS programme. This was the first real-world analysis of the programme which provides specialist domestic violence training support and assistance with referrals to GP practices. The study found that in 144 practices in four London boroughs over four years, clinicians increased referrals to advocacy agencies for women affected by abuse. There was a 30-fold increase in referrals. A comparison London borough that didn't commission the programme and just had some general awareness training, there was no increase in referrals at all. So it really does seem to be an initiative that can make a big difference. And the college felt this was a particularly worthy winner this year, given the increase in cases of domestic abuse that were seen during the COVID lockdowns. We're always keen to hear about any good news stories from the world of general practice. So if there is an initiative that you've been involved in that's made a difference in your practice or community, or you want to shout about the achievements of colleagues, do get in touch. You can email us at gppodcast at haymarket.com. That's it for this episode. Don't forget you can keep up with all the latest news affecting general practice at gponline.com. Thank you for listening and thanks to Nick and to Dr Richard Main for speaking with me this week. If you have any comments about the podcast, you can get in touch on Twitter at GPOnlineNews or by using the hashtag TalkingGP. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to rate us and you can subscribe to Talking General Practice from wherever you get your podcasts. We're back in two weeks. See you then.